0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit
1: SavageArms.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by GoHunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up to become a GoHunt insider today at GoHunt.com. 2% Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside, and giving at least 1% of time and dollars back to fish and wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, Whenever you're getting a chance to listen to this, welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Jess Johnson, and Jess is a board member for 2% for Conservation as well as the Director of Government Affairs for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Um, Jess has a really unique story about how she kind of came into uh, a life in the outdoors uh, from growing up uh, on a ranch and kind of living that life um, to a life uh, in dance and ballet and How that all kind of intermingled and intertwined to lead her to where she's at today uh, as the Director of Government Affairs. Um, We get to to talk about, you know, not only what her day-to-day responsibilities and what her role looks like there with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, but also all of the tremendous work that she has done. Uh, advocating for women in the outdoors and helping women, um, you know, gain their voice uh, in the outdoors as well. Um, Jess really just has such a passion for, you know, not only the outdoors and conservation, but just making sure that the the industry as a whole is is headed in the right direction. Um, you'll really be able to tell and hear it in her voice, you know, the passion. That she has, she shares some some cool stories and experiences that she's had along the way, and this you know easily is is one of the um, one of my most favorite conversations um, that I've got to have up to this point because it's it's just remarkable the the positivity and the amazing attitude that Jess has towards conservation and the outdoors and, and making sure that that things are headed in the right direction. So, episode 41, Jess Johnson. Enjoy, everyone. All right. Joining me today is the Director of Government Affairs for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, as well as a board member for 2% for Conservation, Jess Johnson. Jess, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm doing good, and it's. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, com- come on and have this conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's one that I've uh, definitely been looking forward to. I've had a few uh, past guests that have mentioned you by name, uh, whether it was the work you were doing with the uh, Wildlife Federation, uh, or Calvin, uh, or Sam, um, referring to uh, the, the call hunt that you guys went on. So I've heard a lot of good things, so I'm definitely excited about this as well.
2: Uh, hopefully they told you all the good stories about the goat call hunt.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, Calvin falling in the creek, yeah, all the good stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was good, it was a good time.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I uh, I know obviously we had to push things back a little bit today because your work schedule is pretty hectic, especially this time of year, so I appreciate you making some time.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to, and, and frankly, it's nice to have a little break in the middle of a lot of policy for some, some good conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. I agree. So there's kind of a lot that I want to cover today, uh, so you have to bear with me if it feels like I'm kind of jumping around <laughs> and stuff here, but... I kind of want to hear, like, I guess, like the origin story of how you were kind of introduced to the outdoors. Uh, you know, has it been a lifelong pursuit? Did you kind of start later in life? What did that look like?
2: Oh, that that is a good story. Um, I I am the daughter of ranch managers, so people that would come onto ranches um, and manage like large scale landscapes for the folks that owned it. And I was lucky in that I have. Two parents who are what I would call conservation ranchers or reclamation ranchers, where they would come on to a place and help bring it back to an ecological balance, whether that meant, say, rebuilding stream beds or working with native grasses or invasive grasses or things like that, all for the balance of like a healthy ecosystem, which supports healthy cattle, um, and so talking about like ranching and that kind of uh, view, I probably am the only daughter of a rancher who was pro-wolf. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
2: so so I grew up both in like extremely rural areas and we moved around a lot because once we kind of brought these ranches back, it was kind of moving on to the next job. So I, I grew up in Montana, Wyoming, and California. Um, I was not a hunter, but I was very much raised in the ranching mentality of knowing where your food came from and and... Uh, being very responsible and respectful towards wildlife and, and whatnot. My dad was a hunter, so I was exposed to it, but but uh, did not participate. Um, when we left sort of the Rocky Mountain West and and we ended up on a ranch in very, very northern California, um, I sort of threw myself wholeheartedly into dance and ballet and uh, acting and, and things to do with being on stage and ended up um, wanting to go to school for that. And uh, through sort of a series of events, um, went tunnel vision dance for a long time and then came out of it, ended up moving back to Wyoming. And I'm not still dancing, but picked up a bow and learned archery and found a lot of similarities between ballet and archery. And then that turned me back into the conservation route. So it was like this sort of thing where conservation's always been a uh, sort of underlying uh, thought process and lifestyle for me. Um, but but putting a bow in my hands and, and becoming a hunter about 10 years ago. I was, was 2021 20, when that happened. Um, that 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 brought me back around to this world that maybe I'd never left inherently, but I, I had been separated from a little bit and, you know, I've, I've been in Wyoming now about 10 years, 10, 11 years. And, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, hunting is, it. it's been so much part of my life that it, when I hit a point, I built my career around it, yeah. even though, you know, I, I went to school for, for something like dance. Um, yeah. I, I came out of it and was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do policy.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask if there was a, like a big ballet scene in Wyoming that I just wasn't familiar with and that's why he moved back or what was going on there?
2: <laughs> no. So um, actually my parents, while I was in college in California, uh, my parents uh, got a job managing a ranch out here in Wyoming. And so they came back to Wyoming, uh, here in Lander and, and the, the sort of full circle part of it is that my parents met and married in Lander. Okay. And so I had never been specifically here, but they came back, started managing a ranch, um, actually up on the Northeast entrance of Yellowstone.
3: Okay.
2: And I came and visited and I was like, Oh my God, I have to get my head checked. Why am I living in California when this place (laughs) exists? Um, and so kind of just left everything in California and, and haven't looked back and it it was the best decision I could have made. I just, uh, I was kind of stuck in a place where I, you know, had had an injury, so I wasn't dancing like I had wanted to. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was not feeling very inspired and so coming back here and you know, putting, putting a bow in my hands and, and getting back into the landscape and back to the conservation roots is, is like, it lit a fire that I don't think is ever going to go out.
1: Yeah. Now, when you moved back to Wyoming, did you, at the time, were you kind of looking at it as, okay, this is just a break to like recharge and clear my head and then go back to dance? Or at that point, had you kind of moved on from dance or decided to start pursuing something different?
2: Yeah, at that point, I had actually been out of dance for a couple of years at that point and, and just was sort of in this uh, transition stage where I didn't really know what to do with myself. And, and I actually, I never formally finished college. So I, I just kind of like left and walked away and was uninspired. And um, I've I've always been that person that head down, stubborn, going to do it my way, even if it's way harder than everybody else's <laughs> way. Um But uh, it's paid off in a a really strange way where I've had this this uh, upbringing of a ranch kid conservationist with the ability to uh, be on stage and talk in public and uh, the the healthy dose probably of, of some some. Passion behind all of that has turned into a, a career in wildlife policy and lobby work that um, I probably never could have expected would have happened, but it did.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's for sure. And and I didn't know um, about your uh, background as far as um, dancing, but it's interesting how you can take so much away from that with like the stage presence and just feeling comfortable in front of groups of people and translating that into you know being a lobbyist and working for the Wildlife Federation and how. They're polar opposites in nature, but there's still a lot of, um, I guess, similarities in terms of uh, just the what's the word I'm looking for here? Just the the basics, I guess, that that go into to both careers, professions.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and even more so, the the similarities between bow hunting and ballet are are so. Uh, apparent to me, you know, in the level of discipline and the level of like repetition and, and, and the sort of flow zone, I think that you get into with both. Yeah. Um. I, it, so it, it really set me up to connect back in a different way. And and maybe that I've interpreted it, but um, you know, it's a strange road into a hunting org policy work, but it worked out well.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just based on you know, kind of your resume of what I've been able to find, uh, yeah, I'd say it's worked out very well for you. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. So, um, but
2: yeah, so it sort of set me up for a lot of different things that then I'm sure, like when we talk about Artemis, it'll it'll all sort of come full circle.
1: Yeah. So before we kind of get too far um, off, uh, kind of off track a little bit here. I want to talk about um, really what it is exactly. I mean, so you're the director of government affairs for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. So what exactly does a job like that entail?
2: So it's uh, I'm sort of the liaison and and programmatic like direction maker uh, for for everything sort of pertaining to government work. So that means like state legislature or federal issues that are. Uh, affecting Wyoming's wildlife access opportunity, hunting and angling kind of thing. And so, so what that looks like is say at the state legislature, um, you know, as what happened today, a federal, uh, lands transfer bill was just introduced and logged. And so my job is to look at that bill, see what it says, um, how it sort of works out and then, you know, Lobby for it, and that that there there's organizing that happens with that. So uh, I have a lovely colleague who works underneath me, Anna Kaufman, and she kind of when I'm like, here's the talking points, here's how we're gonna do it, here's how we're gonna message this. She then is the one that turns that into uh, action. So you know whether it's having an event or calling people or writing an email or things like that. Um, so I'm sort of setting the direction on a lot of that, and oftentimes I am the lobbying voice down at the legislature. So uh, I have a full time presence there when they are in session. So from day one to the end of the to the end of the session, I'm there. I'm walking the halls of the Capitol. I'm you know creating relationships with legislators, and um, you know I think the thing that like my main job is to learn how to work with people who we disagree with on a lot of things and and how to work with them respectfully and effectively uh to then protect these resources that we have and um i do a lot of work as well with the wyoming game and fish department uh they have an incredible crew here and and are really sort of top notch and so we work really closely with them as well making sure that all the decisions and everything that we're talking about is backed by the science um and so so that like it's a long way of saying I'm a lobbyist um, and I I am charged with decision making on it. what's good for wildlife and what's
3: not.
1: Yeah, so I'm not super um, informed as, in terms of like how like legislature and things like that tend to work. So if like let's use today for uh, an example and a, a bill comes across your desk um, and you need to start making moves on now. Whether Is it kind of whether you guys are pro or against the bill, depending, it will, will kind of determine the route that you guys take in terms of the lobbying?
2: Yeah, not only just pro or against, but like how hot button is it? You know, like, is it a bill that's like, I mean, it's bad, but it's not, it's not like horrendous. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of like triage uh, these bills and, and, you know, federal land transfer is pretty high on the list of yeah. bad. In yeah, our, for uh, in sure. Our, Mindset. So, so as soon as this bill logged, um, you know we were against it, and so we were reading through the bill, and and sometimes like you miss stuff, like you misinterpret things, and you have to go back and uh, you know the stuff here is to be accurate and to be humble when you're wrong. So that does happen, but you read through the bill and you try and come up with talking points and and what is the argument for your stance? So you're against it, but why? Right. And 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 do you have all of the information? Um, to, to be against that, or do you need to go do some research? And there, oftentimes there's a lot of bills where you do have to go search. Luckily, the state of Wyoming, at least with federal transfer lands, uh, about five years ago did a study that they paid $75,000 for, and the outcome of the study said that uh, if we were to manage all of the federal lands within our state uh, and they were transferred to us, uh, that it would bankrupt the state. So oh. <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah. We already had all of the study there. So so then my job is to just go find the study, make sure I have the talking points right. Um, and then get that information out, whether it's to our membership or to the general public, you know, social media is a great a great tool on that, but it can also be a hindrance in the sense of like, you have to be careful how you message things. You don't want to over inflate an issue or underrepresent an issue. And so, you know, a lot of the language, you know, my job is to f- thread that needle. And, um, I actually made a mistake today on this federal transfer bill and I had to go back and do a little asterisk and correct myself to make sure that that was all in the up and up. And you just have to, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, uh, quick thinking, lots of talking and a lot of research, um, with little time to be, uh, edited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that. Yeah. I was just going to say, I can imagine that gets a little nerve wracking and, uh, uh yeah you just you don't want to screw up but you also know that yeah matters are time sensitive so you have to kind of be on the ball and be ready to react at a moment's notice like like today for example
3: <laughs> yeah
2: yeah yeah and you know it uh the luckily this bill like our session starts on Monday this coming Monday we've been doing kind of a weird virtual thing because of the pandemic so it hasn't looked normally normal this year at all. But our uh, we will have an in-person session starting Monday where these bills will be worked through. So we were lucky that this bill logged early enough um, to where I did have, say, a whole morning to look at it. Um, but it talks about how complicated some of this stuff is because that bill is 15 pages long and it's uh, all in statute language. And, Ugh. you know, you miss stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: So how was it exactly that you found yourself um, in this position as the director of government affairs?
2: You know, so I came on with Wyoming Wildlife Federation about, I think I'm five years in now. Um, And I came on three quarter time and I was just the public lands coordinator at that point. And that year that uh, the state of Wyoming um, had paid for that study, for that public land uh, study. And they also had a constitutional amendment that was uh, sort of Greasing the uh, passageways for federal land transfer. So it wasn't like a, like in your face, federal lands transfer bill. It was a little sneakier in a constitutional amendment that basically was just the state of Wyoming going, Hey, we'd take them if you want to give them to us. (laughs) Um, And, and in doing that, you know, that was our first real major fight on the public lands front. And, I was down at the legislature testifying on this bill just as a coordinator and started realizing that like there were not very many young women down there. um, And there were no like paid people for hunting and angling specifically doing work down there. And I was started scratching my head and, you know, there's been histories of lobbyists on and off support, like working for the hunting and angling industry um, in the past. And, and some Even in this interim time, you know, that we're there for like a week or two, but you like being an effective lobbyist, you have to be there full time. You have to build those relationships, figure out how you work with people and uh, sort of that whole thing. And and you can't do that in a
3: week. You know,
2: you have to be there that whole session. And so I went back. And I was, like, all fired up and mad because I just, like, (laughs) listened to the whole legislature ignore, like, 34 to 60-something testimonies against this bill, and they passed it anyways. Um, It did end up dying uh, later in the process, but, like, that was, like, a really eye-opening thing of, like, okay – bills don't live and die just on testimony or like level of like how many people don't agree with it. They live and die on like relationships we create and how we leverage those. And so going back, I went and um, went to uh, our executive director and and basically was like, we need to find out how we can be down there full time. It's the only way we're going to be effective. It's the only way that like there will be a real voice that's down there. And it's the only way we're going to get anything done. And so I kind of went and I just, like strong armed my executive director being like, go find me funding so I can be down there full time and I'll do it. And I went through some lobbying classes and, um, I've always been, you know, a debater, I think by nature. Um, (laughs) my dad will tell you all about it, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, it, it really turned into this thing where the, that next year I was down there the full session and we had a hundred percent success. We passed every bill we wanted to pass and we killed every bill we wanted to kill. And, uh, it just showed the success of, of relationship building, even in a state that is as sort of, uh, it, you know, Wyoming is an entirely red state getting conservation things through the state is hard. Right. Um, and And not because they don't care, it's just that the numbers economically don't add up and and other things take priority but uh it it was a it was a learning curve and now, five years in um still haven't missed a legislature, you know still going down, have great friends have learned a lot about building relationships and and respecting people even when they vehemently disagree with you um and learned a lot about about being a young woman in a uh, predominantly uh, old white guy legislature.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, um, that was, was a very
2: different message there.
1: Yeah, well, that was kind of my next question was, how how was the process of, I don't want to say fitting in because that that, that just doesn't feel right because I, I believe that we're all equal, right? But that's obviously not always the case, right? Um, how was it that you, like, how was it a, how were you able to kind of gain the trust and build those relationships Like you just said, in um, you know, in a in a space where it's predominantly you know old white men.
2: (laughs) Well, I I actually I got very lucky, um, and and again, dance helped with this. Uh, A year or so before this, um, I had participated in like a community wide dancing with the stars, uh, (laughs) and I was one of the dancers, and they had paired me. Uh, with Representative Lloyd Larson, who is a representative from Lander, and um, he's he's kind of like the most grandfatherly, sweet, wonderful human. Um, and he, I made him do a hip hop dance to the <laughs> Men in Black, <laughs> the Men in Black theme, and uh, you can still find it on YouTube. I'm yes. gonna really pay for seeing that, but you can still find it on YouTube. Uh, and it was it was so much fun. He, he worked really well. Lloyd and I fall on opposite sides of the aisle on just about everything as far as politics wise. Um, but I loved him and he was so kind and good. And, and so show, you know, a year later I show up to legislature as a lobbyist, you know, sort of baby faced and, and wide eyed, um, and Lloyd stood up and introduced me to the whole House of Representatives, and and talked about me being his uh, his dance partner, and that like my perseverance and and my ability to you know work with the old white guy and make him do a hip hop dance was you know really good. Uh, really gave me a leg up because it, it what he did for me was was essentially give me value right out mm-hmm. of the gate, and so I never felt like I quite had to like just like really prove myself there. And, um, I, I think had that not been the case, uh, cause I suffered from imposter syndrome a lot in those first couple of years. And had he not done that, I probably would have been a lot worse, uh, imposter syndrome, but, uh, it did, it kind of gave me a footing where I, it, they then somebody that they respected in their ranks had respected me and, and it opened a door and that kind of has, has, like pushed this idea of, of, of making sure that we work across the aisle on a lot of things. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, it could have been a lot rougher than it was, but because Lloyd Larson was there and, and sort of, um, eased the doors open for me, it it was a lot better. I still, I think, uh, took a lot to, to make sure, you know, when, when people think about like in Wyoming, you know, the person speaking for hunting and angling and it's this young white woman uh i think they were a little surprised uh <laughs> but i wasn't like you know a flannel wearing jean wearing ranching hunter right. um but, but you know once they got to know me that that is who i am <laughs> yeah um and and so it, it took them a little bit to get used to me but they've always been very generous
1: no well that's that's good and i like to hear stories like that right where or instances where You know, people from, like you said, not only different sides of the aisle, especially uh, in a position like yours, but with such different backgrounds and and just really kind of different outlooks on life, I would imagine, given the stages that you were at and for him to make it a point to let, you know, all of his colleagues know that, you know, Jess means business. She's the real deal. She's here for all the right reasons. You know, I mean, that 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 goes a long way and it kind of it speaks a lot. You know, I've never met Lloyd, obviously, or wouldn't know him if he walked in my front door. But it, it kind of speaks a lot to his character as an individual.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's really where I go back to. And I think one of the most fundamental things I've learned about lobbying is attack the issue, not the person. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we make it personal, you've immediately debased yourself and, and you're opening yourself to personal attacks. Rather than if you take the high road and you just hammer the issue, that makes it so you can sit across from that person, you know, the next day when maybe you're supporting a bill they
3: brought.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah, um, and I think that that,
1: yeah. that goes for not only legislature, but I think kind of all things in life, right? As soon as you start <laughs> attacking someone personally when you guys have a disagreement on an issue, yeah, you lose all credibility and it's just anything kind of said after a personal attack is is thrown out there is kind of moot, you know.
2: It's like null and void at yeah. that point. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll definitely be sure to uh Search that YouTube video and put it in the show notes for uh, for all of our listeners out there.
2: There's a there's a great Men in Black, and I think our second dance was to the King and I's "Shall We Dance." So I also taught him how to polka. It was yeah.
1: It sounds like it a good fun. time. It was good. <laughs> so I want to kind of shift gears a little bit now, and, and kind of continuing on with uh, or the theme, I guess, in, in terms of you know being a woman in in an area that's kind of predominantly male dominated. Um, and that is Artemis sportswomen. Um, and you are a founding member of that, correct?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I actually have the privilege of being like the, the first coordinator that brought all of the founding members together. And, um, it, it's similar timeline. Honestly, it was like the minute I sort of recognized that I had a voice in this space, like the universe just opened. Um, I got the job with Wyoming wildlife federation and, and the federation is a true, we're an affiliate of the national wildlife federation. So, um, you work together with national wildlife federation, but we also have the ability and the autonomy to disagree when that happens. And, um, it's a really great and cool, uh, relationship between affiliates. Uh, but, because of that, it also opens a door to a lot of opportunities. And so as I was coming on board with Wyoming Wildlife Federation, I was being really outspoken, not just about policy issues, but about my experiences in the hunting world and, and sort of seeing a lack of mentors that were female. Um, Also starting to yell about that a little bit and being like, why is there not women talking conservation and hunting? Like, we have like Shane Mahoney and Steve Rinella and all these guys, but where are the gals in this space and why aren't they given a pedestal to stand on? Right. And, um, so I, I was vocal and outspoken about it and the National Wildlife Federation heard uh, and, and Aaron Kendall gave me a call and basically was like, hey, so we've been wanting to put some effort behind building like the female demographic in the hunting world and we have some funding are you interested in in coming on board part-time um and and figuring out how to do this and obviously i was like again sort of like wide eyed and baby faced and just like oh my god that sounds amazing yeah let's do it um having very little inkling of like what it would turn into um but it it took about a month on a job there before i went oh my gosh this is not a job for one person this is not a job for one voice and Um, so started reaching out to either women that I'd heard about through the grapevine that were powerful conservationists or women I met at say a pint night in Jackson, um, to Maggie human, another co -co co-founder and actually one of the co-hosts of the Artemis podcast. She and I met at a pint night and we bonded over our mutual hate of pink camo,
3: uh,
2: (laughs) and and so the, the, this, this cohort of co-founders grew pretty organically and grew from, like, either people referencing or or my own interactions with these amazing women, um, and, and so Brad on the first 10, and, and from there it was, you know, most of the messaging, most of the intent, and most of the, the everything you see from Artemis now uh, was laid by a foundation of those 10 women. Um, and, and I think it's a really incredible thing that they are, many of them still very involved. Um, and then, you know, it just took off, but I, honestly, with Artemis, it was like, well, what are we trying to do here? And it, and we never wanted to be like this man bashing or our messaging never wanted to be hateful towards men. It just wanted to be sort of broadening the space and, and being like, maybe there's another way to talk about things and maybe if we do it this way it'll create a space that's more welcoming um uh for 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 women and you know it 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 pushes the door open an inch at a time you know artemis's uh thing is 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 speaking to women and talking about women and and that's what we're good at um you know as as much as we are wanting to be sensitive and and good on diversity and good on lgbtq like that is not our Voice, but the cool thing is, is that we got this amazing uh, landslide of support, and what we were able to do then is then hand that power to groups like Queers in Camo and Hunters of Color and uh, the LGBT Outdoors and like that whole thing where, where if you push the door open a little bit and then pass your power on, right, then then we're building an actual diverse like base of of who the hunting community actually is, because like I think who we present as and who we actually are, are probably two very different things um oh, predominantly yeah. you know stats are stats but but there's more there than that and um so as artemis opened this door and and it was like drinking from a fire hose it was <laughs> unbelievable and and at that point you know we kind of launched artemis without any real like strategic plan or anything and then kind of we're like oh my god what are we doing uh and had to backtrack and back do a strate- strategic plan and and Create a little more structure there, but um, the initial response was so much that I it was even now I think I still wake up and have to pinch myself and be like, you know, we're four four and a half years in, and um, we are national and we have people from international like places asking about when we'll be international. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, the National Wildlife Federation, who's provided this cover and this place for Artemis to be born, is going like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just this, you know, it's a good problem to have. It's, it's a great problem to have. And, and the woman that is a uh, program manager of Artemis now um, is, could, we couldn't have a better person on board. She's just a powerhouse in her own right. And um, she's going to take Artemis to the next level. And I just get to sit back and watch and participate now. And that's really
3: nice.
1: Yeah. So you, you kind of touched on it there, but if you could go into a little bit more detail on, you know, for those that might not be familiar with Artemis, you know the kind of the the goal and the focus um, for Artemis as a group. Uh,
2: the niche is is that if we present more role models that are are you know looking and speaking like us, so putting more women out there talking about conservation, talking about you know policy, talking about ethics, talking about getting into hunting, their trials and tribulations in hunting the more that we have that out there, the more welcoming the space will be for more people. And when you diversify anything, you're gonna strengthen it because, right. you know, when when you have one voice saying one message, only a couple people are gonna hear that message and it's gonna resonate. But when you have many voices speaking many different messages that all have a common value, then you like broaden the ability of who's gonna listen. And so Artemis is, is created to create a welcoming space for women that maybe didn't feel like they had one before, but also to present role models um, and a place for those that have been in this place and this industry for a long time and and um, it just creating the networking. Uh, you, you don't really know what's possible sometimes. I mean, there's a reason they call it breaking the glass ceiling, because like, if you don't see yourself in that role or see yourself in that activity, it's hard to imagine yourself ever doing it. So a perfect example is is a colleague of mine um, and I were talking about uh, recommendations for Wyoming game and fish commissioner spots. And we were like racking our brain to find like a well-qualified man who could like fill this. And it like an hour into the conversation, both of us looked at each other and were like, oh my God, both of us are like qualified. Like, why yeah. aren't we even thinking about this? Like it, we were just, you hadn't seen it so we didn't talk about it and it just sort of pigeonholed the conversation right out of the gate but it wasn't intentional so it, right. it you know, with Artemis out there you know, hopefully and we're seeing it now like there's more women running in government um, than ever before there's, there's more women leading in conservation groups than ever before there's a voice that's changing and, and it's, not, it's not saying that the voice that was there is wrong what it's saying is that there's more to it And it's just adding to it is how we look at it. So yeah, it's a long way of saying, uh, we want more women involved in leading.
1: Yeah, no. And I think that's, um, that's a great thing. And and like you said, anytime you can add diversity to anything, it's just going to strengthen, um, you know, whatever that thing I guess is. And in this case, obviously hunting in the outdoors and conservation. Um, it's funny that I've seen, um, I think I came across Artemis uh probably a few years ago um but the more I kind of look around and I think obviously having the podcast has helped as well and some of the people that I've been able to speak to um, you know, the amount of women that are kind of stepping up to the plate and trying to become more active and more of a vocal leader and a presence um, in the conservation world. And it's, to me, it's refreshing because I think that yeah, sometimes you just get tired of hearing kind of the same old rhetoric from people. So to hear a different point of view that, you know, you've probably never even considered, I think is a is a wonderful thing, you know, not even in just the, the outdoor space and conservation, but just life in general. I mean, there's so much more, You know, people have such different life experiences that can offer a different perspective that you need to hear those things to kind of open up and broaden your horizon.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I I think, you know, when you're looking at the plight of hunting and what we're facing, um, a change in tone and how we talk about hunting is is about the only thing that's going to save hunting.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: women are the fastest growing kind of demographic within the hunting space. Isn't that
2: true? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember, It's somewhere in the like 20% of all new hunters are women. Um I think that's I could be different now. That was like 3 years ago statistic. It's probably more now, but um I you, you know, it's 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 a rising tide.
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely is and it's uh I think it's definitely from a trajectory standpoint it's 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 headed in the right direction and I kind of look forward to seeing how things progress over the next, you know, 3 to 5 years, especially you know, with the way social media has gone and now, you know, you can get your voice out there and to, to such a larger audience than, you know, ever before.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. And social media, it can, it's going to be either the savior or the downfall of the hunting community. And I'm, it's 50, 50 either way.
1: It it is kind of a coin flip at this point. I know exactly what you mean, because you'll see, you know, even people that are, you know, both pro hunting, you know, they just have you know, people like to pile up on other people who are doing things maybe a little bit differently than the way they are, even though they're they're after the same outcome and the same end goal. Which is is pretty unfortunate, in my opinion, because I think as a, as an industry, as a community, uh, we're very small. Um, so when we start kind of ganging up on one another, it it doesn't help kind of the overall fight that and the overall goal that we're after.
2: Well, and I think you know. Th- by being so small you know what hunting is what four or five percent of the overall population mm-hmm. and and I think the statistic is like the vehemently against hunting is like eight or nine percent and then the rest are all kind of ambivalent either don't know much don't care aren't really like augured in in anything but when you look at like a small percentage and we're small percentage and we deal in something highly highly controversial you right. know death in our culture is frowned upon we, we take people dead relatives and we pump chemicals in them to make them look like they're not dead. And, and like, we, we are so uncomfortable with the concept of like a natural death in nature and a food chain, um, that then you take a small population of, you know, I'm going to go out there and say it, a small population of bad communicators. Yeah. And then you hand them something like, okay, now wrestle with death and tell all the other population about how it's Okay while you also have this like overarching mother culture that is saying death is not okay and not something to be okay with. Um, you've just handed them a ticking time bomb and set it up for failure. Um, so we're, 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 you know, by nature of being the smaller part of the population under a major microscope because culture is like, we're uncomfortable with what you're doing. And, then you add on top of that, like poor communications or bad setups for arguments. Um, we shoot ourselves in the foot a lot.
3: Yeah,
1: that, that that's a very good way to put it. Absolutely. So Artemis started off uh, with, with 10 kind of founding members. Where are you guys at now in terms of um, uh, membership or, or people within the organization?
2: Oh, I don't know that number. I think a couple months ago, we, it was like an email list of 11,000. But- oh, wow. I don't actually, I don't know off the top of my head, that would be a question for Marsha. Um, I I have stepped back into an advisory council uh, position with Artemis because of just full time with policy work with WWF and everything else and, and um, placed a lot of those numbers in the capable hands of Marsha Brownlee. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, I wish I did, and I'm now going to go ask her.
3: <laughs> well, for
1: conversation's sake, we'll we'll stay at eleven thousand, and if it's if it's less, well, great. And if it's more, then you have to let me know.
3: <laughs> yeah, I will. I will.
1: So, I guess from from an Artemis standpoint, um, and your time there, what would you say are some of the, I guess. Uh, some of the, the prouder moments or things that you guys have been able to accomplish throughout the, the last, was it four years, five years? I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, it, yeah four or five years. Um, you know, I think the, <laughs> whether looking at like the passage of the Land and Water Conservation Fund or the Great American Outdoors Act, um, you know, even looking and seeing some some senators, I think it was Senator Bennett uh, in some of his photos has an Artemis hat on. Uh, and so like seeing this like message spread and, it, and it's not necessarily just a win of like, uh, a, a piece of legislation or things like that, but seeing this message spread and, and watching the conversation change, the more women that are coming on board with this, um, you know, looking at, at some of the, like the Turkey camps, Uh, that some of the Artemis ambassadors have held that are bringing women in and connecting them and and just having a great time outdoors. And and in doing that, you know, you inevitably sit around the campfire and can talk about things like policy or, you know, communications or problems or or places, you know, where you can have those discussions Um, and seeing that build out. You know, I think just recently Artemis held uh, in conjunction with the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, a women's quail hunt down there. Okay and and it was bringing four women who who had never hunted or or hadn't held a shotgun maybe but once in their life down and and you know talking not only about like the the problems facing the wildlife but also the the ways that we fix it and in integrating that in an incredible uh part of of like enjoying the landscape through hunting um and food yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's like something where, uh, I've seen Artemis excel at, which is not just this R3 effort of like recruitment, re- uh, retention and reactivation, but like this R3 and I like to say, Oh, for obligation. So, so teaching people to come in, but also teaching them how, how to stay there and to have like, like. I think Artemis looks at hunting as a privilege and angling as a privilege, not a right. And knowing that we can lose that privilege if we don't um, behave well and protect our resources and, and things like that. So the obligation is is that educate yourself and, and get active in conservation work and pay it forward and bring others in. And um, also the place of like educating on like, we can bring all the people in we want to, but unless we make this a friendly place to be, they're not going to stay.
3: Right.
2: And so like the, the teaching around teaching mentors, how to mentor better or uh, other things like that. Um, and, and so right. it's maybe harder to give like milestones at right. least, but the larger success other than like the ones that you can actually count the larger success of Artemis, I think has been in changing the dialogue around hunting in a big way.
1: Yeah, well that was it's funny like I have this written down in my little notes here was how do you think it's helped, you know, change the conversation? But I think throughout, you know, some of the things that we've just talked about, you've you've definitely kind of highlighted that, you know, a, a how you've been able to to bring women in, kind of give them uh, you know, a, a more comfortable way to be introduced to the outdoors and gain their confidence and allow them to feel comfortable to, to have these conversations in, in an area where they haven't always, you know, been able to do that. I think is in, in that in and of itself is just, is a huge victory.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think another part that I love about it is that uh, we fondly call them art of men, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
2: but we have, we've, we've had some incredible uh, participators that are, that are men that are fathers or brothers or husbands and, and that are just coming to the board of like, how can I learn better? Or, you know, I can't tell you how many communications we've had of fathers of daughters that are like, I want to take my little girl hunting, but like, what's the best, you know, yeah. what's the best way to do it? Or how do I, you know, make this welcoming or things like that. And, and it's the fact that we're even thinking about that is pretty cool. Um, and, and, uh, I I just, you know, I love, I love the men that have been involved in it. And, you know, Brian Kavanaugh is one of them. And and he's, he's just been a staunch supporter from like, I think Artemis went live on Instagram and he was like, this is so cool. I'm going to tell all of my female friends about it. How can I help? Like right out of the gate.
1: (laughs) No, that's great. (laughs) And I have seen a lot of that too, with especially, you know, people that have been able to speak to on the podcast too, with getting their young daughters involved and wanting to, you know, even if they're at an age where they maybe don't quite understand, you know, what hunting or what fishing is, um, you know, just getting them involved in the outdoors and getting them kind of in the activity to some degree and showing them, you know, so that when they get older, it's not it's not weird for them to be involved. It's not, you know, kind of out of place or whatever you want to look at. It's, it's just, it's natural. It's normal, you know, men, women, doesn't matter. Everyone's partaking in in hunting and angling in the outdoors. And I think that that's, if, if there's a lot of men out there that are, you know, kind of stepping up to the plate and saying, you know, how can I help further this message? I mean, that's, that's great.
2: It was, you know, it took a while uh, I think because of the way I was raised and, and it was never that I was excluded from my dad's hunts. It was just like, he'd have like one morning before he had to go feed cows and he'd go shoot a cow elk or something like that. So it mm-hmm. wasn't like a, like these long hunting trips I think that are, are we talk about now. Um, but I, but I was raised in this thing of like, you know, you pull your weight. I, I didn't have any like feeling of like I was treated differently because I was like, I'm an only child and I'm an only child daughter of a rancher. Mm-hmm. And both my mom and my dad, like I pulled my weight in, in everything and, and they never kind of gave me an indication that I would be treated differently because of my gender in the real world, which was a little bit of a slap in the face when I did get into the real world and like, oh, <laughs> this is a little different. Um, but on the other side of it, uh, when I picked up a bow and I was hunting and, and predominantly surrounded by men, it didn't actually like really click until a couple years in and and realizing that like, I was speaking about hunting in a very different way than my peers were, and not in a like, it it wasn't um, oppositional to them, it was just a different language. Mm -hmm. And when I started realizing that, and that started sinking in, that was when I started going, there's something missing in the hunting community. Um, If my voice is resonating so loudly because I'm just speaking a language that people haven't heard before, uh, something's been missing, and I like we need to work on that. And you know, Artemis is what was born.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I that's and that's great because I think the way you said when you were raised that everyone pulls their own weight and that you're you're not going to be treated differently. I think that's what we should all strive for, right? Is, yeah, is exactly. not to be treated differently regardless of uh, you know male or female. Um, but unfortunately, I mean that's just not the world we live in, and it's. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate when you have to kind of learn that the hard way. But I think if you're, if you're raising your kids to, to think that way, it's, it's just going to help them as they get older and, and how they look at, you know, I guess the opposite sex in terms of whatever activity that they're partaking in or just life in general.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I was raised with the mentality of if you want to do it, you go out and do it and you work your tail off until it happens. And I mean, I think the reality of that is that that might be a pretty privileged upbringing to think about it in that way. But on the other side of it, 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 it made it so I didn't hesitate in like being like, yeah, why can't I hunt? Yeah. Where I think had I not been raised in that, and I do see that as a barrier to a lot of women is, is like that, like, it baked in message of like, you can't keep up with the boys. And, and that's stupid because why would you want to go just do your own thing and keep up with who you need to
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it. Not the way someone else necessarily wants you, wants to, or wants you to.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, it was, I was lucky in my upbringing. Um, certain for certain, and it helped inform, I think a little success on my end there, but, uh, hopefully we're, we're making a place where, where, uh, we can break that barrier down, and it's not there for anyone.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm trying to get. So, I my daughter's four, and I took her out hunting for the first time this year with me, and we lasted. She lasted a half hour in the in, uh-huh. the, in a tree, or excuse me, in a deer blind. Um, a lot of snacks, an iPad, uh, a lot of noise was made. <laughs> she wanted to, you know, get down and look for the deer. I said that's not really the the style <laughs> that we're after here, but I appreciate the enthusiasm. And then when the snacks ran out. Um, and she hadn't seen anything yet. She was like, all right, dad, I'm done. We're, we're good. We're not (laughs) going to see
2: anything. I've had days like that too.
1: Yeah. So no, for, for all the fathers out there or the mothers that are getting their daughters involved, you know, at an early age, kudos to you guys, because that, um, that's what we need in this, uh, in this industry for sure.
2: There is a really cool statistics about mothers too, is, uh, and, and I can't remember where this came from, but it's, it's something like, you know, it, it's sort of a 50-50 if the father hunts, the kids will hunt. Um, it's nearly, it's in the high 90s to 100% that if the mother hunts, the children will hunt.
3: Wow, and I did not know that.
2: Really, It's a really big statistic on as far as like the mothers being like the really clinching the hunting uh,
3: recruitment.
1: Yeah, well, no, that's that, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And I think that that's great too, because I think it, it kind of shows... You know, that that children, the, the, that children kid, whether it's a, a boy or a girl, that, you know, if mom can do it, hell, anyone can do it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's, there's there's no stopping me from from wanting to do it when I get older.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, now kind of sticking with the theme of um, organizations, you are obviously on the board of directors for 2% Conservation, who is a proud partner of the Average Conservationist <laughs> podcast. So, how was it that you first learned about 2%?
2: I, wow. Uh, I think I first, I don't know how I first learned about it. That one is apparently a blank spot in my memory. Uh, my guess is, is that I ran into Jared, uh, at a conference. Um, Jared Frazier, who's the executive director and, and likely, uh, knowing Jared and myself, we imbibed a couple of drinks and connected over uh mutual passion for changing the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually I might have to ask Jared cuz cuz frankly um I'm not sure. I think it was at a shift conference in Jackson that I first met him. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> that works. Uh but but came on and and just as as by by nature of being friends with Jared, you know, his his stick-to-itiveness and his innovation with 2% is contagious. Um And I think, with my policy work, when he reached out to me, uh, it was a couple years ago, and he goes, hey, do you have any bandwidth uh, to be on another board? (laughs) And at that point, I was on uh, a a emerging leaders board for shift, I was on BHA's Wyoming chapter board, Uh, I was still sort of running Artemis and doing my day job, and um, I was like, yeah, sort of. And then looked into what he was asking with 2% and and went back and made room and, and actually uh, prioritized that and said, absolutely, I want to come on, I want to help what you guys are doing. And he asked me on in a specific capacity as, as far as policy advising. So, you know, helping messaging when when there is questions about, like, you know, what is this national bill doing? Does it actually, like, hurt this or do this, how does this shake out? Or if companies that are part of 2% have questions like, you know, is this, you know, ban on Alaskan hunting actually that, or what does it actually do? Um, and so that sort of ball sort of falls in my court. Um and Jared loves to pitch him my way because he knows I go down a major wormhole of research.
3: <laughs> um
2: but uh yeah, so it came on as a policy advisor and have stayed on since and and you know, just can't emphasize how much I support what they're doing, and and just you know at any turn like to talk about it because it's a pretty cool initiative.
1: Yeah, no, it's well for one um, the way you said you know when Jared approached you and said you know do you have any bandwidth for you know taking on another board member position like that's like that sounds like Jared to a T like I could sit there I could picture him saying that. And it kind of takes me back to a conversation that him and I had about, you know, burnout and kind of taking on too much. Um, but I think if, it, if the opportunity is right and you're passionate about it, um, you know, obviously you make room and you prioritize certain things ahead of others. Um, so you kind of touched on it there, but what else does like being on the board of directors, especially for something like 2% that isn't kind of necessarily your traditional um, conservation organization, uh, what else does that entail being on the board of directors?
2: I mean, I think a lot of it right now is sitting on on expanding two percent out, so so we can be used, um, you know, and and a lot of the board members on us have a lot have a pretty incredible hot like Rolodex of networking, Mm -hmm. you know, through our various jobs and what we do. And, and I think a a large charge of that is to be using that Rolodex to go out and find and make sure that, that we're bringing businesses on board or we're bringing artists, we're bringing independent, you know, citizens, whatever it is that we're spreading that message through that. Um, as well as, as taking time, you know, whether I'm sitting on, on this podcast, uh, or, or others, uh, where we use that to talk about this message of two percent. The other side of that is obviously always the uh, sort of finances and pocketbook side. How do we make sure that Jared and Calvin stay on and yeah. and, and and how how we make sure that that runs? Um, although I tend to leave a lot of the financial stuff in the capable hands of, like say Jeff Spazito and and others uh, <laughs> that are that are much more qualified at that. Um, and the nice thing is is that Jared has brought different ones of us on this board for our different strengths. He brought me on for my strengths in policy, Sam Dwinell for her strength in wildlife biology and the science behind a lot of it. Um, you know, and, and so there's that that bandwidth there of, of a breadth of experience. Um, so whatever problems come 2%'s way, hopefully he has somebody to, to stick the finger in the hole and keep the dam from, keep the dam yeah. up.
1: Yeah, and no, that's, that's one of the things that I really like about, you know, just two percent, in general or as you know, as a whole, is the variety of different people and organizations, uh, companies that are you know just involved in two percent that want to, you know, do whatever they can to to make a difference for conservation and for wildlife. So to look at the board of directors and to see the diversity that you guys have there, um, just kind of speaks to the organization as a whole, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really poised to tackle a lot of issues that come their way. And um, you know, it's a safe place for businesses to be a part of and to put their time and energy because it, it, it's done its research. You know, Jared does his research. If there's anything that man is good at, it is the research side.
1: He is good with, with motivating too. I mean, listening to him talk for 10 or 15 minutes about any topic is going to make you want to go out and do whatever that is. I mean, I'll see like his Instagram stories where he's like, you know, growing stuff in his garden or he's baking or he's building a rock climbing wall in his house. And then all of a sudden you're just like, Oh wow, that's awesome. I've got to go do that. Right. Like he has that that ability.
2: Yeah. The stoke factor is high with Jared Frazier. (laughs) Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, So I guess kind of a, a general question here is what is it that you kind of enjoy the most about working in the world of conservation in the outdoors? Oof. I'm going to put you on the spot here.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think, and and maybe this, uh, this probably changes depending on what month we're in. And uh, right now, um, I think one of my favorite things is because I'm in the policy arena, because I get to work with state legislation, Um, it's kind of an instant reward. It's an instant gratification. So like we have an access bill, uh, that's up right now that we're working on that has the potential to generate $1.6 million a year to use towards gaining access in landlocked federal lands in our state. Um, which is huge. That's awesome. And if we pass it, it's like instant gratification. Boom, right there. $1.6 million. Um, you know the 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 other side of that is that like when you're not in the legislative or policy side, it's not such instant gratification, and sometimes you're like, "I've been working on this resource management plan for fifteen years, and it's still not signed <laughs> <laughs> um so so there's you know that thing, but I think what my favorite part about all of this has been uh learning that the value of this. Is, is something that just about everyone has.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we forget that, uh, you know, a lot of the oil and gas workers in Wyoming, if not all of them are, are hunters and they don't want those mule deer to go away any more than we do. Right. Um, however, they're also worried about their jobs, fair. Um, so, so a thing that I love about it is that I've learned a lot of empathy for, for differing views and differing life stories that all have the same common value and it's given me a lot of hope um, but it's also made me really frustrated because you know, I, I think we speak in two different languages, a long term and a short term, and, and conservation speaks in long-term languages. Yes. We're talking about five hundred years from now. But what we're up against is short-term arguments that you can't beat because it's the short-term argument is do I have food on my table? Can my kid go to college? Uh, can I put a roof over my head and my family's head? And those two conversations, while based in the same values, uh the long-term one very rarely wins
1: yeah well i think you you said you, you you said one word there that's very important i think in all aspects and that's empathy right is, mm-hmm. is having uh, or being able to understand of uh, the other side of the coin the other side of the story whatever you want to call it and and having an understanding of where that person's coming from and respecting you know their values and their opinions even if like you know on the same topic where you know like you said like 500 years from now you have the same goal but you know you, you're kind of looking at the short term, or they're looking at the short term, and it, it can be, I'd imagine, uh, an extremely challenging uh, endeavor um, to to be able to convince someone, or not even that, but just to have them understand the other side of of the argument.
2: Yeah, and I think that plays into the policy side and the lobbyist side in me, and and I, I think what I love there is that that at, at the in uh, the danger of maybe belittling it, a lot of this is a chess game. <laughs> In the sense of like, you know, you you learn you learn when to sacrifice things and when compromise is needed and when you can't and when you can't uh, and you have to play stronger or whatever like that is and and you really learn the only way you can be good at chess is to know the game fully and know your opponent and how they play
3: yeah.
2: and uh, there is an element of like the strategist in me that really loves that um, but the the passion behind it comes from this like need to, to pay it forward and to make sure I leave this place better than I find it. So there's like, I get like the fun, like instant gratification of like strategy and, and, and that kind of thing paired with like this thing of like, I'm doing it for a good reason. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) there you go. Well, so just a couple more questions for you here. So as someone who's, you know, so heavily involved in conservation and has made a career out of the outdoors what piece of advice or what single piece of advice would you have for someone who is kind of, maybe they're not even new to the outdoors or to hunting, but they've, you know, for whatever reason, decided to take a more active role and they want to become, you know, more engaged and more active in conservation. You know, what would you tell that person when they're looking to kind of get started?
2: Like as far as like wanting to get in the door of that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, really it's, it's a, if you're passionate, um, find your local organization, whether that's a backcountry country hunters and anglers chapter, it's a national wildlife Federation affiliate. So, you know, we have, there's Montana wildlife Federation, Idaho, Wyoming, there's, I don't know the names of them in, in, uh, any of the other States because those are not ones that are touching, but you can find an affiliate there. Um, Find a local, like a, a National Deer Association group or, or any of those and, and just plug yourselves in. Go to those organizations, whether it's becoming a member, signing up for action alerts. Um, the other thing I would say that that the, the arena majorly needs, and this is totally biased because of my job, so I'm prefacing with that, is is learn how your state legislature works and learn how to fi- follow those wildlife bills um, because, I would argue that the state legislature has more of a handle on your conservation outside your back door Mm -hmm. and and in your backyard, um, than any of the national politics ever will. Um, and so really keying into your state legislature and, and teaching yourself the civics of that. And if you can't do that, find somewhere that will, there's a lot of like online, um, organizations that are, that are teaching lobbying or civics 101 in your area. And, um, figuring that out and reaching out to your state representative that's closest to you, uh, make those relationships, even if you disagree with them. Um, yes. It'll it'll really benefit conservation in the long run. Um, so yeah, it, it sounds scary. And I can tell you that like conservation does feel exclusionary in a sense of like, it feels like you have to know all of this stuff to be involved and, and really you don't. You have to be passionate, you have to care, you have to be willing to share your story and that's the only requirement for that.
1: Yeah, very well put very well put so one final question here for you um i know that a lot of people kind of had you know hunts and and trips and things like that derailed in 2020 obviously because of the pandemic um do you have anything that you're really looking forward to uh as far as hunts what goes uh in 2021
2: i am uh it's more of a project that kind of got extended because of uh the pandemic, um, but I am in the process of working on a, a, a film or a set of films uh, with, in conjunction with Hunt to Eat and Mystery Ranch and others, um, that is sort of a passion project where myself and Shelma Jun, Shelma is this phenomenal uh, rock climber, she's uh, born in Korea and lives in New York, is this powerhouse of a leading woman in rock climbing. Um, and we met at a film festival and uh, I was the first hunter that had ever talked about hunting in a way that made her kind of want to do it. And she uh, was the first person that kind of made rock climbing sound interesting to me. And so we're doing a film around sort of the swapping of roles there and, and how we can better communicate as hunters with the rec- the greater recreation uh, the greater recreation sort of world and how the greater recreation world can look at hunters in a new light so we can start working together a little better on, on these conservation initiatives. And so this is cumulating into stories of me taking Shelma hunting and Shelma taking me rock climbing. And, um, it was supposed to be sort of condensed into a year or two years. It's turned into like a two and a half ish year project. But, uh, she shot her first year last January. Um, but this fall we get to take her elk hunting and I'm really excited about it. Oh, that's um, awesome! and, and I'm going to go meet her in New York this year and, and climb in the gunks of New York and go turkey hunting there as well. And so I, I'm really looking forward to sort of the accumulation of this project. And, and, um, you know, we had to play it pretty dang safe with the COVID stuff last year. So a lot of our, our filming got just kind of pushed so we could be safer about it this year.
1: Nice. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that uh, because it sounds like a a great story, and to kind of take people from different worlds and kind of have them collide and and being able to experience the best of both is uh, is very cool, and it's something I'm looking forward to seeing.
2: Oh, I'm I'm excited. You know, anything to go hunt elk in the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming. Uh, you know, that's my backyard. I I, I uh, that's a general tag for me, but I love taking new people there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Jess, I really appreciate you making some time today. I know you had a very busy day uh, with some stuff popping up at work there, but uh, I really appreciate you making the time, and I really enjoyed kind of hearing uh, a little bit more about what you do and, and the work that you're doing with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, with Artemis, obviously with 2%. So thank you for, for all the great work that, you, that you're doing.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me on, and, and uh, this was a great conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Alright, well there you have it. A big thank you to Jess for taking some time to join me today. Uh, I'd like to thank the partners over at Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you to follow 2% on social media, where it's going to be nothing but positive, conservation-driven content coming out of their various pages and feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online, on social media, or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, If you get a chance, be sure to check out TheAverageConservationist.com, where 10% of all sales go directly back to conservation. So until next time, remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you. (laughs)